So they had come here and, and we had this inquiry when we wanted to sign the deal. So off we went to the Masters. Just amazing week. We met Jack at the Masters at the Golden Bear House. Welcome back to season two of the Business Culture Podcast, a platform to learn through the power of context and story. It's great to be back with you. This season is all about impact. I'll be chatting to impact makers across industries and geographies to understand how they have made true impact on their customers, colleagues, and communities. In this episode, I got to chat with Robbie Marshall, chairman of Golf Data. A man of humble beginnings, Robbie takes us on a fascinating journey of how Golf Data, South Africa's most successful course design business, became the force it is today, as well as befriending Jack Nicholas and others along the way. Let's hear his story. What I'd love to find out for, for our listeners to start with, you've had an amazing story in, um, in the golf industry, in the construction industry. Um, it spanned many years and I think it's been a fascinating one from, I believe, the days of what was your company called before you started Golf Data? Well, I had a few. Lawn Doctor, Home Lawns, Concept Greens. Concept Greens was the first uh, golf-related okay. company that started pulling up those old Sun Odin Greens and planting bent grass. So, so the world was, I suppose, a very different place back then. Um, give, give our listeners a sense of, of what things were like then, how you started and how you ultimately got to where Golf Data is today. Well, I um, came out of matric. I wasn't clever enough to, to go to university. Uh, I became a banker, believe it or not. And then uh, I never ever thought about golf. Like my, my late dad always said, you should be playing golf. Golf's the game to play if you want to get anywhere in your life. But I was a good footballer, I was a good cricketer, I was a good all-rounder at school. So um, I got into golf really out of default. I was in the army in southwest Africa and my best friend was a provincial uh, hockey player, ex-golf professional by the name of Robbie Chapman. So Robbie and I played lots of provincial hockey together. And when we, uh, when we came out of the army, Robbie said, come man, we must start to play golf. You must learn to play golf. Although we did have one game of golf at Walfus Bay in the desert. He showed me how to play golf with a farvine and those little oil greens. So I used to visit Robbie out at, uh, he was the golf professional at Vereniging Country Club. And I just loved what he did. So after the bank, I moved on to being a sales rep and one of my trips was out to the Vol Triangle. I said, no man, you've got the best job in the world. Can't I, <laughs> can't I do something like this? So I started playing golf and I was offered the position as the greenkeeper. We didn't have any fancy titles in those days. You know, we weren't the superintendent or the agronomist. We were just the old fashioned greenkeeper. So there was a, there was a uh, position gain at the old Henny Murray Country Club as a greenkeeper. So I went home and I, I'd uh, been dating my lovely wife, Mari, for a while. And I said, gee whiz, I want to leave corporate life now, the bank, and become a greenkeeper. 
So obviously in those days they'd say, well, how much are you, you know, what are you going to earn? So Mari was working for the Bank of Lisbon as a, as a private secretary, earning 600 rand a month. And Irene Murray offered me 250 rand a month. So I said, damn it, I like this. I can't, uh, you know, I can't live doing something that I don't enjoy. So that's how my career started. And then within about a year or so, a year and a half of starting to play golf, I actually won the club championships at Irene Murray. So I thought I'd arrived, you know. So I said to Chappies, now I also want to be a pro now. I must be a pro. And I had an awful golf swing, but I practiced hard. I had an amazing short game. So um, he, he just kept, he said, Robbie, you're going to starve. Just be happy being a greenkeeper. So I went from there, had a, a lovely career at, um, at Oeni Muri. One of my highlights was playing with the late Bobby Locke. And in those days, he was, gee, I'm trying to think, this. that must have been like 1975, so go back. I'm not sure how, how old Bobby would have been. But he cruised around there and he made 69. So easy. And we used to, we used to drink a little bit in those days, you know. We enjoyed our beer in the pub. And Bobby and myself and Robbie Chapman, uh, we had a late night with our old master. So that was, that was amazing for us. And then just before, I must t tell you another lovely story about O'Henny Murray and, and Robbie Chapman. In those days, they had what they called Team Becks. Now, that's probably way before your time. And Team Becks was Becks Beer, the, uh, Louis Late, brought in Late Lager and Becks Beer, and he started sponsoring some of the golfers. And in his four ball was Simon Obday, Hugh Barkey, Dale's and they invited Robbie Chapman to play at Irene Murray. <laughs> and uh, Chappies beat them all that day. And I mean, that was when Dale and Hugh were really good. I think Chappies shot about 67 that day. So those were good days for me, you know. Um, playing with Bobby Locke, meeting Team Bex, Dale and... and and you, Barky, were big guns. They were, they were the boys, other than, obviously, Gary Player. Um, and then just before I left there, I also I played first league, and I played in a, in a competition with, with Robbie, against him, actually, you know, pro-am. And that day, he shot 61. He made 11 birdies for 61. And those scores were unheard of back then in the late 70s. People didn't shoot 61. You know, if you shot 67, 68, even if you look at Gary's scores, you know, you never shot 61. So he was an amazing character. And I'll get back to a nice story about, um, about Chappies if I don't get too emotional about him. On the day that Pearl Valley opened, um, which was what day? The, 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 week before the, the week before the President's Cup. Robbie had uh, been uh, diagnosed as can with cancer and about a, a month before I said, come, you've got to come up to Leopard Creek because we'd done our, re our first revamp there in 2000. And Chappies had never been to the, to the Kruger Park. So I said, come, you're taking a week off. It's two buddies. You've got, you know, you've got the big C, which is sad, but off we go. We go up and we go to, uh, we go to Leopard Creek and the Kruger Park. 
So the day of, of the opening at Leopard Creek, uh, I mean at uh, Pearl Valley, we'll all, re all remember Gary and Jack playing. And then somebody in the crowd said to Gary, if you hold it out the bunker, I'll give you $100 or $1,000. And he had the three balls. And myself and Mari and, and Barbara Nicholas were standing together. And Barbara said, I'd never take that bet. And as we know, Gary had two shots and I hold the third. And I phoned, I came off the green at Pearl Valley of 18 and I phoned Jackie Chapman, Robbie's wife. And she said, he's just gone. He's just passed. <laughs> anyway, that's a long-winded one, but I think it, 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 it puts a little bit of into uh, perspective, you know, how this all started. <laughs> And I mean, in terms of that wonderful relationship that you've developed with Jack and, and Barbara, uh, tell us about how that, how that came to be and how that sort of, I suppose, made an impact on your life and career and, and with Golf Data. Yeah, that was, um, you know, we were in the business. Like, um, we started Concept Greens and Golf Data and we just could not crack a job. It was always Gary, you know, and we were contractors. And I had... Um, my partner at the time was Mark Muller, and Mark worked for Jack for seven years. And in the apartheid days, I said to Mark, unless we get a big name, we're never going to get a job as golf data. We're always going to get the revamps. Even way back then, we were the, the company of choice for revamps. But when Sun City and the estate started uh, coming on stream, we couldn't crack a job. So I said to Mark, we've got it, you know, let's just, let's try. And then soon after Nelson Mandela was released, the Nicholas company said they want to come into South Africa and, you know, participate in this golf boom. And who should they contact? So they contacted a few companies. They sent their, um, their CEO at the time, Tim Kenny. He came over here and he met a few people, including me and Mark. And we said, well, this is what we think we can do for you. You know, we can represent you. So if the telephone rings and rather than the client having to get on the airplane and go to West Palm Beach, we can represent Nicholas Design. And these are the courses that, that we have on our books that we may be able to convert into Nicholas Signature Golf Courses. And the first one was obviously Samola that we had done, Mark Muller and, and, and Ron Kirby, the famous Ron Kirby, who, uh, who worked for Trent Jones um, for Jack, and he was, the, he was the designer of Sun City under the name Kirby Player. So Ron was just a fabulous guy. And uh, we, after negotiations, they said, I think Golf Data is the company to go with. Immediately after that, they invited us to the Masters, to, to talk to them about possibly signing Ulla Grenica in those days at Samola, the first Nicholas signature golf course. So we, and Ron actually said, guys, if you want this to work, give up your, what we're doing as the designers, Kirby and, and Golf Data, and, and you've got to go with Jack. So they had come here, and, and we had this inquiry when we wanted to sign the deal. So off we went to the Masters. Very nice, Mark, myself, and Ulla Grinica, and we had the most amazing week. We met Jack at the Masters at the Golden Bear House, and it was, it was 
you know, it was hard to even imagine that we would, we would be there. All the, 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 the Part 3 course, all, all four days, functions every night, you know. It was, it was, it, it's actually hard to explain to somebody that hasn't been to the, the masters, but it's even more difficult to explain to somebody being in that company, you know. So that's, that, that's where we got our break. And we signed the deal. We signed a million dollar design fee in the good old days at four rand a dollar, <laughs> four rand to one dollar. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. And then obviously after that, it was Pearl Valley and uh, another seven odd necklace signatures. Mm. I mean, you've got to spend quite a bit of time with Jack now. Um, what strikes you about you know, him as a person? What strikes you about, um, you know, in terms of what he's achieved in, in the world of golf? And I, I guess you guys have, have built that strong relationship. What do you value most about that relationship with him? Phew, I think it's uh, just the person, eh, that he is. He's just such an amazing family man and so warm, you know. So people see him as a golfer and uh, he's more than that, you know. He's, he's, yeah, he's, he's my idol for sure. I think you're not the, uh, not the only one who shares that, uh, shares that favorite. Um, and then obviously we, we, we're sitting here with Damien, the, the general manager of Pool Valley, and an interesting story of how it came to be that, that Golf Darts got involved with, with Pool Valley. I'd be fascinated to hear the sort of early stages of that courting process and how it ultimately came to be that you guys formed that partnership. This is going to, I don't know if this is going to be a, a disappointment to some people and a, and, and a shock to others, but... Um, we were actually busy at, at Samola and we were also negotiating to, to build Pekinwood Golf Course. And it was, a, um, it was over an Easter long weekend and I got a call from Fred de Kock, the, the architect, to say that he's had these negotiations with the Malaysian company, Dr. Lim, and they were keen to do a Gary Player signature and um, for whatever reason, I think it was just our good luck, their bad luck, Mark Player wasn't available and they wanted a meeting because the Malaysians were in South Africa. And I'd just taken time off to go up to Johannesburg and see our relatives in Johannesburg and go to the Kruger Park, it was Easter. And um, they said, can I come to a meeting? on Saturday morning, and I'd like, this was like Thursday, so I said, gee, I don't know, Fred, let's check if I can get a flight. So I checked if I could get a flight back. The family were like destroyed. Well, we've just got here on holiday, you know. Why would you want to go to a meeting? Now, what's it all about, you know? So I couldn't get a flight out of Janusburg. So I said to Fred, okay, if, if I can't get a flight, then I'll drive but I'll be at the meeting tomorrow morning. So I got to the meeting and they had it at the old farmhouse on the other side of the river. Damien, help me, I'm not even sure what it's called. Yeah, I think it's just on the, on the, on the, on the, side of the farm. On the Burgrove, so, so there I, I showed up and I, at that stage I had some of my nice Nicholas brochures and they said, well, I told them how, how great Nicholas design was and et cetera, et cetera. So they said, well, they've, they haven't 
really committed to play yet, but they're in a hurry to, to make a decision. And within a week, we had convinced them that they should use a Nicholas signature. And that was the kind of person that Dr. Lim was, you know, and, the, and then that was a condition that I'd signed up with, with, with a Nicholas company that if we brought them a deal, then we would be the preferred contractor. So I told them that, you know, and then the rest is history about Pearl Valley starting and then stopping. And uh, we were fortunate. We had a lien on the, on the, on the deal during the construction stage. So it stopped the, 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 uh, the developer, the, the, the main shareholder in Malaysia said, well, we're not, we're not going to do this now. And then Dr. Lim stepped in. And, uh, and as we say, the rest is history. We, come, we got on site and built the golf course. It's, it's an amazing site in, I suppose, many respects. And, and some might say it's quite a flat site for a golf course. But the interesting thing is when you play that course, you don't think of it as a flat site, um, speaking as a layman. And I think that's a testament to what, what you guys have done in terms of the construction and the design. Yes. What, what were some of the biggest challenges in building that layout, getting it to where it is today and be ultimately becoming number two in the country as you've recently been awarded? Well, you know, I think when you, that was a bad site, actually, let the truth be known, because they had a fire that came through there. So they had a lot of pine trees that were burnt. And all you had was, I can't remember the exact percentage fall across the site. But from the time you come into the gate to down at 13, you had a, you just had a flat pine forest like that, burnt pine forest with no valleys, no lakes, no anything. From a golf course design designer's point of view, an awful site, terrible site, other than the backdrops of the mountains. So you didn't have a, if you can compare a good golf course site, you know, maybe a De Salsa or where you got valleys, you got changes of elevation. Everything that is out there had to be redesigned and remolded and moved. And the only way we could do that was to move a lot of soil. And in layman's language, if you've got a flat table like this and you want to make it look linksy, you've got to get the soil from somewhere. So you've either got to dig a lake, take that soil, put it on the fairway and mold it up. Uh, that does two things. It, it creates the interest of the golf course. It also puts the plain areas above the water table so you can actually create the lows and the catch basins, put in the drainage and, and make the, the golf course work from a drainage point of view. So when we got the, 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 after the first site visit, and I actually tried to hook out some photographs, which I found in my big box of, of Jack and myself and a few of the professionals on an old Suzu Bucky driving through the site when it was a farm. I'll find it and I'll give it to Damien for, for Pearl Valley. So we got, we got the plans and I mean there was no topsoil at Pearl Valley. There was just that little bit of, of dune sand which I hate and then uh, the cobbles, cobbles and then clay. And we looked at the plans and we needed about 1.5 million cubes of dirt to build the golf course there. Otherwise we wouldn't have had a golf course. You would have had, you would have had the, the, the flat dune sand a little bit of clay in the cobbles and then dead flat. So in the winter time, it, it, would, it would not have functioned at a golf course. So we were forced to move that amount of dirt. 
So all the man-made lakes on the development inside between the homes and all the man-made lakes on the golf course, those lakes were excavated. All of that material was, was, was used as cobbles. So we used all the cobbles to do all the undulations and then we brought the, the black topsoil. There was a discussion I was had with Dr. Lim. I said, Dr. Lim, you're not going to be able to grow decent grass on this dune sand. But we were fortunate to, f to find the topsoil down at the, where the equestrian center and the nursery is. So we, brought, we, we molded that whole golf course out of cobbles and then we, we capped the golf course with, uh, with the, 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 the dark topsoil. Dr. Lim was a tough negotiator around, around the costs. You know, we had, in the, we had in the budget drainage, and I think at the time it, was, uh, it wasn't a lot of money. In the bigger picture, it was about five million. And he questioned this line item, you know. So what's this about drainage? He said, no, that's proper drainage. We want to excavate main lines, like a big herringbone throughout the golf course, down the center of, of, of all 18 holes. And those main lines vary from 300 millimeter diameter to a meter. You can, you can crawl in those main lines. And then all the, all the greens and fairways and bunker drainage drains into those main lines. And then the main lines actually go and interconnect with, with the lakes. And between Nicholas Design Golf Data and Oricon at the time, my friend Bux Zeman, they designed this subsurface drainage system that Dr. Lim agreed on spending another five million and thank goodness he took that decision because we wouldn't have been the golf course that we are in the winter time had you taken that drainage away. And it's something a lot of people in the golf industry don't understand. They think if you put a little herring bone in, 10 meters apart that you drain in the golf course. It's not that at all, you know. I think as a layman, it's, it's always interesting the way you explain that, that us golfers who play the course, we see the final product in terms of what's on top, but we don't realize the effort and the thinking and the, the structures that go beneath that. Sure. And it's something which I think it's, it's good for people to, to understand. Pool Valley was obviously built in a, in a very different time than what we find ourselves in today in terms of what the trends were. Uh, I believe it was built initially with cool season grass mainly and it yes. was a very much more American style. Um, t talk to us about how things have changed since then and, and where trends have gone with, I guess, sustainability becoming such an important part of golf courses. Um, how, has, how has Pool Valley kind of evolved with those trends and, 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 and those changes? Well, you know, when, when Nicholas Design's agronomist visited the site, in the, the EIA, the Environmental Impact Assessment, Kikuyu was ruled out as an option. So the only grass that we could have used other than cool season was the, was the Bermuda or the Sun Odin, the summer grasses. And we've got lots of that in the Cape, although they called it a common Sun Odin. So the, the, the leaf was was broad compared to the newer the newer fine sun odens. The problem with the, the decision that the agronomist had is that in the Cape, round about April, the sun odens just go into dormancy. We've got a patch, and I'll show you later on this putting green, of the 
the, the new grasses that we use down at Leopard Creek on the green. They're fabulous in the summertime, but in a month's time they go, the color of, of that coffee cup, totally dormant. So the agronomist said, okay, you can have Sunodin, which will be much easier to manage in the summer, less water, more sustainable and all those good things. But unless you overseed that golf course every year like they do overseed Augusta, and a lot of people think Augusta is great. It is great for the masters, but it's dormant in the wintertime. When they have frost, it's dormant and they've got to overseed it. So they've got Bermuda grass in the summertime and they've got the overseeded selection for the masters. So that was the option. And if you look at the cost of seed, it, it just was not viable. And Dave McIntosh was the head agronomist. He's, he had a, an amazing career anyway. He was the lead agronomist for the USGA Tour before he joined Nicholas. He came over and he said, sure, Robbie, we've got a tough call here on the selection of the grasses. Because of the, and then the climatic conditions were also a factor. You know, hot and windy in the summer, really hot and windy, especially on that side, as we know and cool and wet in the winter time. So when you need water, you don't have it. And when you don't need it, you don't want it, mm. you know? So the grasses will always, that, that could be another whole day's discussion with superintendents, managers, sustainability and the like on what you should do. I think they made a good choice with the, with the uh, cool season grasses. Also from a, from a um, they're selling houses. You know, you've got to understand that. So when a, a designer or contractor gets, gets interviewed and you're a developer and you've got 500 stands to sell, you don't want to launch the development with a, with a dead golf course. So when Pearl Valley was launched, it was like, wow, I can remember it. Nobody had done that before. They had this emerald green Augusta-like golf course. That's lovely for a developer, rather than something that he's battling to get. So there's a lot that goes behind the scenes, more than the member would realize. You know, the developer wants a green golf course to sell his properties at a premium, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we all know that we've, uh, we've had challenges with the grasses, but over a period of time, and this was also the the uh, the comments that the agronomist said you are going to battle in the summertime you are going to overseed you are going to have patches but for eight or nine months of the year you're going to have great grass or you can go with bermuda and have it very easy in the summer but some of our winter months are lovely and, our, and the best time at pearl valley as we know is in the spring you know when the when the fainbos is flowering and and you get out of August if you start getting warm August, September, October club championship time you can't beat that golf course now if you had Sinodin and you didn't overseed you would say you know get on when are you going to green up when are you going to wake up you have a terrible golf course so that's a that's a long winded answer to a short question but that's it's 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 those decisions that I guess you know again the outcome is, is what most of us see but we don't realise the the thinking and the permutations that obviously that, that go into that. Um, in your opinion, in terms of, of golf courses in general and where things are going in terms of sustainability and, and making sure that it's, it's still a viable you know, model going forward, 
what are some of the things that you've noticed, you know, in terms of those changes that are, are going to be more prolific, I guess, in, 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 in all the courses that we see, you know, especially in South Africa? What, what are some of those changes that you're seeing? I think it's a lot depends on where you are, you know, in the country and what your climate, your, what the climatic conditions are. I mean, Leopard Creek took a decision to get rid of all the cuckoo and go with Sun Odin. It plays different it's easier to manage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you'll, if you had to interview five professionals, you'll interview Charles Swatchell, who say, I love the cuckoo, crazy to change. You interview another four, they say that's the best thing they've ever done. So what would we do if, if, if we had the final decision to make now? Damien, myself, Rake Mornay, and, 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 and uh, the Val de Vie owners, you know, what would we, what would we tell them? It's very difficult. Mm. You know, you've got, to, you've got to paint this picture that you can never have a golf course that's, that's good for 12 months. If Augusta National can't achieve it, how are we going to achieve it? If the, if, if the old course can't achieve it, I mean, the old course, I've been there many times, fortunately. When it rains there, they hate it. I hate it. They don't want to see green grass. They want to see it hard and fast and fairy ring all over the greens and, and diseases. And, and as long as the ball rolls nicely, that's all they're interested in. They're not interested in how it looks. So it's a discussion and I wish I had an answer. I have an opinion, but so do many other people have an opinion. <laughs> I think what you've achieved with Pearl Valley in terms of you know, evolving its to be more sustainable and, and those challenges that come with it every day is, is a remarkable achievement. And I think to still have it at the, the quality that it is, considering these changes, is, is, is somewhat spectacular. So I think there's a lot of kudos that must come with that. So I've, I've got some, some questions, but before I do ask them, Robbie, I wanted to know your best score around uh, Pool Valley. What, what would that be? I'm sure I've shot a level par around their way back. Level par 72 in the very early days. Okay, so you, you, you're pretty close to breaking par. That's, that's what I was hoping. I've got I, think I, I think I shot, uh, I, I shot about a, a, a 69 plane alternate shots with, uh, with Ernie in the SA Open Pro-Am one time when I was hitting his, his drives. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I assume you might, might have played a round or two with Jack. Did you ever get close to his score or not? That's probably the most tragic story I can ever tell. It, it's going to sound like a fisherman's story, but it's actually a true story. Um, when we opened Houghton Golf Course, it was the, the Saturday after my 60th birthday, and my family organized uh, a, uh, a, a party right here for my 60th. But we knew that the Nicholas, Comp the Nicholas team were flying in on the Tuesday. So they had been to the Kruger Park. Uh, Jack phoned me from Gary's farm at Colesburg on the Wednesday and said, oh, Gary doesn't want to let us go. Um, so we're not going to come to Cape Town. And he was going to be a special guest at, at the party here. But he said, I know how to sort this all out. It's your birthday on Friday. We're going to go from Colesburg and we're going to go to Leopard Creek. Why don't you come up and play with me and the boys? Come and play golf. 
at Leopard Creek. So I went home and I said, sure, you won't believe what's happened now. It's my birthday. I'm 60. It's a Friday. We got a party here, a surprise party, supposedly a surprise party. All my family are down from Johannesburg and my best friends, and I've been asked to play golf with Jack. Now, how can that happen in a lifetime? That it all happens at the same time. So I phoned him. I said, Yo, you know what the story is? He said, no, there's not even a question. Your family comes first. Don't worry about golf. There'll be another time, you know. And that's how he is with his family. Don't worry about the golf. I'll see you tomorrow at Houghton. So we had a big party on the Friday night. And I was on like the 7 o'clock flight the next day to open Houghton with Jack. So he had a fabulous round of golf, and a few of the, a few of the members at Houghton, a few of the good golfers, were very critical at, about what we had done there, especially with the greens, you know. And that was one of his designers wanting to, to zhuzh up the golf course a bit. So throughout his round, they were on to Jack, you know. Like, how do you putt from there, and how do you do that? And I was just so thrilled. I walked with him most of the time, he said, well this is how you do it level par no problem no problem he went around there and then he said okay we got to go so in typical Johannesburg style there were Rolls Royces you know parked there Jack won't you just drive the Rolls to to the to the hotel they were flying out the next morning on the air bay so he says to me he says how did you get here so I said no I've just I've got one of the company double cab trucks one of the buckies. No, that's fine. We don't have to go in this damn Rolls Royce, you know. Let's just go to the... We, off we go. I said, no, Jack, come, just come sit here. We have to do that. We have to. So we got in the Rolls Royce. <laughs> we drove to, to Oro Tambo. We were all booked in at the hotel. And that was where I had my dinner with Jack and Barbara and the, and the, and the family for my 60th. So I missed out on playing golf with him. But I have, you know, I've, I've had opportunities. Mm. But he doesn't play a lot of golf, by the way. He just plays with, a, you know, if he, has, a, if he has, a, has the choice of going fishing or, or playing golf, he'll, I think he'd probably like to mm. fish these days, especially. Strikes me as a man who's got amazing, understands balance a lot. He does. And it's all, you know, it's all about family. He, he puts his family first. So when we used to organize his itinerary, mm-hmm. and I've got all his itineraries, all seven visits, you know. So if you, uh, if you signed a deal with him, now you're the developer, you know, so you, Martin, now you want to do a new golf course, Martin and Raken, and say, come, Jack, you know, let's do another golf course. What does the, what does the design agreement give us? Well, it gives us, uh, obviously, pay a fee and how many visits. It's normally the visits. And he always, his, his secretary, Rose, always used to phone me and say, Robbie, how many visits does Jack have to do? Because I've got to check his diary, you know. Okay, the client wants two visits or the client wants five visits. No, we can't do five visits. We'll do three visits. Because one of the grandsons is playing baseball or sport on it clashes and he said to me, he said, there's no ways. I don't care if you arrange another two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars for another visit. Mm-hmm. It clashes with a sporting event. I'm not doing it. So that just tells you a little bit about the man that he is, yeah. you know. 
It, it strikes me, I remember his grandson getting a hole-in-one at uh, the Par 3 contest at the Masters, if you recall, quite recently. Yes. And he still, I think he said in an interview afterwards, he said it, that was one of my proudest uh, moments in golf. Not not all of his achievements, but one of his yeah. his grandsons achieving that. So it's pretty I've, special. I've actually kept on my phone, I've kept a few WhatsApps. So I WhatsApped uh, Jackie too. I thought, no, there's no way he's going to look at his phone, you know. They're walking around. Yeah. And it came back within about an hour. Jack is so, like, in tears. It was one of his... Oh, geez, that was, it was amazing to watch on TV. It, you couldn't have scripted it any better. So it was. Uh, Robbie, to end off, I've got a, a few little questions, quick-fire questions here for you um, to, to get to know the man a little bit better. So I'm gonna I'm gonna fire away and answer them as as best as you can. If you could play uh, first one, if you could play one sort of style of course for the rest of your life, Parkland or Links? It would be Links because we don't often get the opportunity here. Good, good That's answer. any reason. Yeah. Uh, your ultimate four ball, including yourself. Obviously, Jack Nicholas, Ernie Else. I love Ernie and Tiger. Gladly caddy <laughs> for that four ball. Uh, Masters or the Open. The Masters, just because of the, the aura of the Masters and the, and the Open, sometimes I've been to two or three Opens, uh, the last one at Carnoustie, two, at, two at, uh, at the old course when, when Jack retired, obviously. And the, the, the Open courses are sometimes difficult from a spectator's point of view. Mm. And the Masters, as we know, you know, so you can leave your little, your little stool there and go away come back and your little stool's exactly where you left it. I want to do a whole other podcast with you on Augusta, but we'll, we'll get to that one there. Um, hit it like Bryson or putt it like Faxon? Faxon. Cool. Draw or fade? Fade. The best hole you've ever played? I'm going to be biased. I like Pearl Valley, number four. That's a great answer for this podcast. Uh, the best hole you've ever built or been part of? Yo, there's not one... Probably five, but I love Samola because it was a tough site. I love number 16 at Samola. Mm. I love St. Francis links. Uh, you know, the, the holes that were built out of the runway that used to be a runway. Uh, I haven't been there for a while, so let me think. 13, 14, 15 around the big lake. That was as flat as this table. So those links holes were totally created from nothing. So they've got to be on that list, I would imagine. I'm sure there are a couple more that if you thought about, there'd be um, some good memories around as well. And then lastly, the most, uh, the most challenging course that you've, you've ever had to build? Samola, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like another podcast we need to do around that one as well. Robbie, um, as always, it's, it's amazing to chat to someone like yourself. You've had a phenomenal influence on, on South African golf and South African golf courses. I think all of us golfers can be very thankful to have someone like you who's created some amazing landscapes to be able to play on, uh, to be able to enjoy. And it's about more than the golf, as you said before. Um, you know, it's about being able to be out there with your friends and to do it on your courses has been an absolute honor. So thank, thank you. you. That's been a fun, fun, fun career. And thank you. And thank you to Damien and your team. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. That's it for today, guys. If this episode brought you value, please do subscribe to the podcast series. And for more information on building your organizational culture, visit us at rcaconsulting.biz. We'll see you in the next episode.